everybody. Time for us to get started. And we're on page 33, 33 in your workbook. There you are. Yes, page 33. And we will have to make some tracks. This is, as you see, top of page 33. This is lesson 22 of 40. So we have a 19 to finish tonight and, and tomorrow, or excuse me, next week. And then that's the end of our, our semester, but, but we, can, we can do it. So we're going to uh, go through uh, quickly, but I hope informatively. And if you have any questions as we go through, don't hesitate to ask. One announcement, and then we'll jump in. And that is this uh, Sunday during our second hour. Our worship hour starts at 9.30, but then our second hour, educational hour, kids' classes and adult classes and all of that, uh, start at 11, uh, actually 11.15 technically. Uh, but probably in this room this Sunday, 11.15, I'll be doing our next newcomers orientation. So any of you who have not taken the newcomers orientation, then I recommend you do that. Uh, it's uh, me going through for four Sundays in a row, material, a booklet of material about our church, where we came from, what we believe, why we do things the way we do, all of that. So it's designed to be informative for you, and then you take that information and prayerfully consider if this would be the place that God would have you to uh, serve and grow. No pressure for when you take it. We don't hound you after that, all of that. You just get the information. So uh, if you're new, this is an opportune time for you. That's uh, this starts this coming Sunday, and it's for four weeks in a row. All right, page 33, the temptations by Satan. So at this point in the overview story of the Bible, as we seek to do good soil evangelism, uh, the name of this class, we are wanting to make sure we understand the full scope of the Bible's uh, redemptive drama, starting from Genesis, going all the way to the end. In the first 20 of these 40 lessons in the booklet that you have, we've been looking at what the first part of the Bible says about that story, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And we've seen that it was filled with promises, predictions of one who would, who would come. And this one who would come would be the solution to the problem caused by sin. He would be the, the redeemer. And those promises were given in Abraham. And Abraham was told, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then uh, after Abraham, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's, son's, Jake, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has... Uh, 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And as Jacob, when he's dying, he gives uh, pronouncements, prophecies on his sons. And he says of one of those 12, Judah, that Judah, the scepter, will never, never depart from you, the tribe of, of Judah. So this one who's going to come is going to be through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then specifically through the tribe of Judah, he's going to be a king, the scepter. He's going, to, he's going to rule. And then as the Bible story moves on, you have the first real king of, of Israel is, is David, King David. You have King Saul before him, but then you have King, king David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in your, in your Old Testament, in your Bible, uh, there are prophecies, predictions given about a descendant of David. So David is through the line of Judah, and he is told that you are going to have a descendant, David, specifically through you. So not just through Judah, but now specifically through you is going to come one who is going to be the king, and his kingdom will last forever. So as we move forward, we're learning more and more about this one who is who's going to come. And then we're also told uh, later, through the prophets, through Jeremiah, through uh, Ezekiel, that God is going to make a new covenant with His people, better than the old covenant. The old covenant was the law. The old covenant was what He gave through Moses. And remember, we saw that there's the tabernacle and all of that, and them wandering in the wilderness. And they've got these laws from God, 613 of them, actually. 
and nobody keeps God's law. Nobody. After all of these centuries, nobody does it. Let me just stop here and deal with one of my pet peeves, and then we'll, we'll move on, okay? But nobody keeps the, the law. So the law's in existence by the time Jesus comes for 1,500 years, and nobody's kept it. And you have people who teach that the nature of humanity is not, is not completely dead in sin. That the nature of humanity is such that we have a disposition towards sin, but we're not completely dead in sin. That we can do right if we just choose right. Well, okay. Is it, is it just an accident that for 1,500 years, like nobody did that? So the Bible actually teaches something else. It doesn't teach that we just have this sort of tendency towards sin. And you might get it right or you might not get it right. It actually teaches that sin has debilitated us spiritually. So that from God's standpoint, we don't ever do anything right. Even when we do the right thing, we don't do it for the right reason, the glory of God. So there's always the, then the, the motivation. So, you know, people who say that, I just want you to understand, they're just, they're just not getting it. And because the problem is so radically bad, then it required such a, a radical solution on God's part, namely God Himself coming to earth to be the solution for it. And this new covenant, I'll get you in a second here, Joe, this new covenant is going to be better than that old covenant because nobody kept the old covenant. And the reason they didn't is because nobody had the capacity to do that. Nobody had the ability to do it. The problem wasn't the covenant itself. The problem was the people who were attempting to keep it. They couldn't. The new covenant is this. I will put my spirit in them. And I will put my law in their hearts. And so now it's going to be their nature to do that. God promises that He's going to give this new covenant. And all of this is going to be inaugurated when this one, this Redeemer, through Abraham, a descendant of David, comes on the scene. Well, we left off last week seeing that this one, of course, is Jesus. And that's how the New Testament starts. We saw the birth narratives. And now we're going to see on page 33 the temptation by Satan. Yes. Yeah. If nobody uh, completely satisfied the laws of God, what does it mean for someone to be righteous in the Old Testament in terms of how that was used? Yeah. So uh, the same. Well, it means the same thing it means for us. You know, we're we're righteous in that we're given the righteousness of Christ, even though we're not righteous. <laughs> so we are we are declared to be righteous. So let me give you an example. Genesis chapter fifteen and verse six. Genesis 15, 6, says of Abraham, I'm quoting, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So because Abraham believed God, God counted Abraham as righteous. Even though we know Abraham still sinned, he sinned grievously, didn't he? I mean, you tell, you know, God tells him, I'm gonna have, you're going to have a special son through your wife, Sarah, and he decides, you know, you're taking too long. <laughs> I'll go have a son through Hagar. So Abraham sinned. He certainly wasn't perfectly righteous, but he was counted righteous, declared righteous. And that's the same thing that happens to us uh, when we come to Christ. He declares those who are not righteous to be righteous. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, here's what it says. It says, God, I'm quoting, justifies the wicked. The word justifies means to declare righteous. God declares righteous people who are not. None of us are righteous. None of them were righteous. But God declares us to be righteous. And so as a result of that, now we can do right things. Christians, unlike before you were a Christian, you can do the right thing and do it for the right reason. But you never do that 100% of the time, this side of heaven. And none, none of the patriarchs did that either. So they're declared righteous by God, same way, same way we are. Good question, though. All right, page 33, temptations by Satan. Top of that page, before beginning his ministry, Jesus was personally tested by Satan, but resisted those temptations with statements from God's Word in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. 
Jesus grew up in Nazareth where Joseph, his earthly father, worked as a carpenter. Now, the Bible tells us really very little about Jesus' early life. You, you really, uh, you're, you're, uh, the first part of your New Testament and the first four books there called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are about the life and ministry of Jesus when He was on earth, those really deal with uh, about three years of ministry, starting when He was about 30 years old. Prior to that, we see very little. We have the birth narrative, and then you find him when he's 12 years old. He's at the uh, temple, and he's confounding the elders there with his, his wisdom. Uh, but then after that, next time you see him, he's being baptized by John the Baptist, and he's about 30 years old. And Luke, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, Luke summarizes those years between 12 and 30 by saying Jesus grew this is, quote, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So he grew spiritually and he grew physically. And then you find him on the scene when he's 30. And you see point B here in, on your, in your notes. At about age 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist, the popular prophet of God, and was led by God's Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Notice uh, those four words, led by God's Spirit. So you have this... Uh, confrontation between Jesus and, and Satan. And Satan is tempting Jesus. And you could, if you're not careful, you could get the idea that you know, Satan is some, somehow leading Jesus around. Uh, but who's in control of this? Je Jesus was led by whom into this? Led by God's Spirit. I just always want to remind you that God's always in control. And whenever Satan, the devil... Is, is involved. Don't get the idea that you've got two equal powers out there. You do not. Satan is a created being, and God is the creator, and everyone and everything is subject to His sovereignty, His authority. Jesus was led by God's Spirit into the wilderness, so this was God's plan for this, this to happen. Now, in, um, in Matthew chapter 4, you see point C there, read Matthew 4, for sake of time, for many of these, I'm not going to be able to, to read the passage. Some of them we will tonight, but not all of them. And so there are three temptations that Satan gives in that chapter. The first one is turn stones into bread. Do this kind of magic trick if you really are the, the, the Son of God. And Jesus answers that by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 4, saying, Man uh, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the Word of God, the spiritual Word of God, is more important than physical bread. That's what Jesus is, is saying there. And then uh, going on in Matthew chapter 4, you have the, uh, the second temptation. Satan took Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and challenged Him to prove that He was the Son of God, this time by leaping off of the temple so that God's angels would rush to, to catch Him. But Jesus again quotes the first part of the Bible, Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy uh, chapter, chapter 6, rebuking Satan for trying to tempt the Lord your God, trying to force God to respond to Satan's demands. And then later in that chapter, Matthew chapter 4, there is a, there is a third temptation. Satan took Jesus to a high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He promised Jesus that he, Satan, would give Jesus all of these kingdoms if he would fall down and worship him. But, of course, Jesus again quotes the Bible in response to this. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you shall worship the Lord God alone. So Jesus resists all three of these temptations of Satan. Now, here's what's important about that whole episode. Jesus is called in the New Testament the last Adam, the last Adam. The first Adam we saw in the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. So the father of humanity, Adam. Adam is tempted, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan. We saw that and they fail. Jesus is now the last Adam and he succeeds. He succeeds where the first Adam failed. And at the very beginning of the New Testament now, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, you see that Jesus is going to succeed where humanity, through Adam, 
has completely failed up until this, up until this point. And this is part then of Jesus' righteousness, that he is going to live a perfect, that perfect life of righteousness that nobody else lived, that can be counted to us, even though we're not righteous, when we come to him. And this is part of that. He's tempted like the first Adam was, but unlike the first Adam, he doesn't succumb. All right, page 34, John the Baptist's proclamation. God's prophet, John the Baptist, announced that Jesus of Nazareth was the special king and savior, God's lamb who would take away the sin of the world. So after resisting Satan's grueling series of temptations, Jesus returned to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing repentant people and preaching about the coming of the Messiah. John called the crowd's attention to Jesus and he made a remarkable proclamation. Now on your map, let's see, what we got? I think I have the map here. If you guys want to go back to page 7, you can. It's in your workbook. Let me see, do I have the map? No, I thought I did. Okay. So on page 7 is the map, and you can see where the, uh, the Jordan River is and where Nazareth is, where Jesus is, is from. But John makes this pronouncement, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of, of the world. Now remember, you see in your notes here on page 34, what we've studied about sacrificial lambs taking away sins. You've got event 17 on page 28. If you were to go back to that, that's the tabernacle. And you remember the design of the tabernacle. You're given, a, you're given a little schematic of it. And when they would go into the tabernacle and into the holy place of the tabernacle, the first piece of furniture in there is an, is an altar for them to offer, offer sacrifice. And so uh, sacrifice has to be offered, and specific instructions were given about what type of lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb, had to be a male lamb, without blemish, all of that. And now here is John saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So these people to whom he's saying this now, they're all picturing that. They're all picturing these lambs that were sacrificed for all of these centuries in the temple and in the, in the tabernacle that did not take away sin. But now here is the Lamb of God in, in human form who is going to die and take away the sin of the world. So if you look at C, remember the promise of Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. Those are events 11 and 12 in your, in your notes, so you can review those uh, later. But in those, in those promises in Genesis 12 and 22, God told Abraham that all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham, and uh, your descendants. And this particular seed of Abraham, Jesus, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Judah, David, right? Jesus. This particular seed of Abraham is the one through whom that blessing is going to come for all the world. So that's how John the Baptist can say he takes away the sin of the world because he has the capacity as the perfect Lamb of God to do what no other sacrifice could. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. And so that's the connection then between Jesus and the promise that God gave to, God gave to Abraham. And then John chapter, chapter 1, John the Baptist says this. He says, this is he, that is Jesus, of whom I said, after me comes a man who was preferred before me, and he was before me. And I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him, that is Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes, notice, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So this is John the Baptist saying this about Jesus. And notice he says, he was before me. But John the Baptist is actually older than Jesus. 
So when he says he was before me, and then he says he's the Son of God, now what kind of declaration is he making about who Jesus is, that he's pre-existent? He's actually saying that, that he is God. All right, so at the beginning of the book of John, this is, this is what you have. You have uh, John the Baptist making these, uh, this declaration about uh, Jesus. And then in John chapter 3, you have on page 35 an encounter that Jesus has with a religious leader. Top of page 35, on one occasion, Jesus told a prominent religious leader that he needed to experience a spiritual birth in order to enter into God's kingdom. Now, on the next two pages, we're going to see Jesus having an encounter with two very different people. One is this religious leader named Nicodemus. The next one in John chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman. And these are very, very different people. But the interesting thing is that even though they have very different backgrounds, they both are in exactly the same boat. They both need exactly the same thing as we're, as we're going to see. So you have in John chapter 3, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Notice that it's dark there. That's on purpose because John chapter 3 says that this religious leader, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. So he comes to Jesus by night because uh, he's a Jewish religious leader. And he's not supposed to be buying into Jesus. But he's intrigued by what, Jesus, what he's heard Jesus say and what he's heard about Jesus. So he wants to know more, so he comes to talk to him, but he comes to talk to him at night so he's not seen by, by others. So Jesus and, and Nicodemus. He's a member of Nicodemus, uh, something called the Sanhedrin. And these are the Jewish, it's the Jewish ruling council. He is one of 15, one of 15 uh, religious leaders who legislate in areas of religion and morality uh, for, for Judaism. So he is indeed a prominent, prominent man. And Jesus tells him, well, here's what John 3 says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, ruler of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus by night. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me just stop there. Well, that's just getting to the point, isn't it? I mean, just, just, Jesus just jumps right to it. He, he knows, he knows uh, Nicodemus. He knows Nicodemus' need. He knows that he's a proud religious man and thinks that his relationship to God is because of his religion. And so he says to him, even a guy like you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That first verse where it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In your New Testament, or in your Old Testament as well, did you know there were no chapter and verse divisions when they were originally written? So these were added centuries later so we can find stuff. <laughs> so the numbers, the chapters, the verses, they help us index the Bible. But they weren't there. So sometimes a new chapter will start and you end up separating it from the last verse of the previous chapter when they really should go together. And the last verse of John chapter 2, the last line says this, Jesus knew what was in man. That's the last line. Jesus knew what was in man. And the next line in chapter 3 is, there was a man. In other words, it set, it set you up for, Jesus knows, he knows everything. And he knows humanity. He knows people better than those people know themselves. Now, here's an example of a man. And this guy's a religious leader. And Jesus knows the deal with him. And the guy comes and says, you know, what you read here by night, but Jesus just jumps right to what he needs. You need to swallow your pride and understand that you need to be born again. Nicodemus said to him, verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, and be born? So he's not understanding. He's thinking of physical birth. Jesus answered, assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of, of God. 
first part of the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 36, talks about uh, water cleansing one spiritually. And so that's what Jesus is alluding to here, that unless you are cleansed spiritually and from the inside out by the Spirit, then you will not see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, verse 8 there, when it says the wind blows, you hear the sound. Um, the Greek word translated spirit is pneuma. You guys know some Greek. You know pneuma because you know like pneumonia. So, because, because the word pneuma means spirit, wind, breath. And depending on the context. And so pneumonia is a breathing problem, right? And so, so the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same word. And Jesus is making a play on words here. The wind blows wherever it will. The spirit goes wherever it will and to whomever it will as well. And you don't control it. But you require it. You require the work of the Spirit so that you have a new birth, a spiritual birth. So Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth, a birth from, from above. So look at C. What do you think Jesus meant when He talked about the need to be born again by the Spirit? If you go back to chapter 1 and you read verses 10 to 13, Here's what it says. He, that is Jesus, was in the world. The world was made through Him, but the world did not know Him. He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. His own being His own Jewish people. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Spiritual birth. Birth by God, birth by God's Spirit. Nicodemus, this is what you and everybody else needs. Now, John chapter 3 goes on to talk about um, an incident that we saw earlier in your notebook from Numbers chapter 21. Here's a reminder of it. Numbers chapter 21, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten... When he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You guys remember that, that we saw a few weeks ago? So now here's Jesus in that very chapter when he's talking to, to John. He's invoking that incident, and he's applying it to himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So what's going to happen with Jesus? How's Jesus going to be lifted up? We're going to see He's going to be lifted up on the cross. And just as people looked at the serpent on the pole to be healed and, and live, people are going to have to look to the cross to believe in order to be born again. And so the Bible goes on to say famously, this is all preceding you know, the, the, the most well-known passage in the entire Bible. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only, gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. Jesus has come in order to reverse that condemnation for all who will believe. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of, of God. So everybody needs this. One who has come, promised in the first part of the Bible, has now come in the second part, the New Testament, Jesus, the Messiah, God having come to earth, even religious guys like Nicodemus. And if you look at page 36, even somebody like the Samaritan woman. On another occasion, Jesus explained to a woman of Samaria 
how God could permanently satisfy her spiritual thirst. So, Jesus is now going to encounter a very different kind of person, but they both need the same thing. And you guys remember this going back many weeks ago, the understanding scale? And, you know, everybody down at the very bottom starts with a God vacuum, aware of a higher power and all of that. And so they ascend on the right going upward in their understanding. And in our evangelism, in our giving of the gospel to people, we want to bring them to understanding. We want to help answer their questions. We want to tell them what the Bible says about them and their need and about God's provision for it. So on the right side there is understanding. But at the top, you see the arrow going across from left to right. And that is receptivity. So there's understanding and then there's receptivity. So we're trying to impart understanding to the person in evangelism, but we can't control their receptivity, but we want to try to gauge, gauge that. Now, with Nicodemus, before we move on to this woman at the, at the well in Samaria, uh, how would you gauge his receptivity? Well, you know, he did show up, didn't he? He wants to know more. He took initiative, actually. He came to Jesus. So something's going on with Nicodemus. And as a matter of fact, when we get to the end of the book of John and Jesus is crucified, guess who shows up? Nicodemus. And he takes charge of the body of, of Jesus. So it appears he actually became a follower, of, a follower of Jesus later. So he's shown some receptivity. And then you've uh, got the, uh, the Samaritan woman, and we're going to see the, the same thing with her now. Now, uh, with regard to Jesus talking to a Samaritan of any type, woman or man, the Samaritans are hated by Jews. So that's some background to this. They're hated by Jews. Here's why. They're half-breed Jews. Samaritans are the product of intermarrying between Jews and non-Jews, going all the way back centuries earlier to the Old Testament. So bad was this animosity between Jews and Samaritans that Samaritans uh, had their own place of worship. That's why in this encounter in John chapter 4, Jesus said, Our fathers worship on this mountain and yours on that one. Do you guys remember that? Well, that's why they had their own mountain <laughs> to worship on. So they're, they're segregated. You don't... You don't, uh, you don't uh, fraternize, you don't, you don't talk with Samaritans. That's also why Jesus' parable of the good, the good what? That's why that was so poignant. Because Jews saw themselves as superior to the Samaritans. And yet, when there's this guy who's beaten and left for dead, remember in Jesus' parable, you know, you have a, a Jewish religious leader goes by, he doesn't help him. But then it's a Samaritan who helps. <laughs> and Jesus is telling this story to, to Jewish religious leaders. So they are hating on him for telling the truth about them. He's exposing the need of their, their hearts. So that's the background now to Jesus coming to, uh, coming to the Samaritan woman. Page 36. In Jesus' day, people from Samaria were looked down upon, even hated by most Jewish people. Jews were forbidden by their religious leaders to even talk with them. They were considered to be religiously unclean. So with that in mind, here's what John 4 says. Um, I'm going to come back to that map. John 4 says, He, Jesus, left Judea, departed again to Galilee. Now notice this part. He needed to go through Samaria. And when it says he needed to go through Samaria, it doesn't mean he needed to go through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. Because the truth is you can get to Galilee without going through Samaria. And as a matter of fact, all Jews, if they were going up to Galilee, did not stop in Samaria. They went around Samaria. There's a way to get to Galilee without going through Samaria. When it says he needed to go through Samaria, it means Jesus had an appointment in Samaria. <laughs> He's got a divine appointment, and so he came to a city of Samaria named Sychar. So here's the map, and Jesus is coming from Judah. You see Judah down toward the bottom in the middle, 
And then you see above that, you see Sychar in Samaria, but above that is Galilee, right? You guys see all that? All right, so if you're coming from Judah, you can go around Sychar, can't you? That's what everybody did. They're not going through, they're not going through the Samaritan town, Sychar. They're going around it. But Jesus, on purpose, does not go around it. He goes to it to meet with, to meet with this, this woman. And so here's what the, uh, the encounter is about. He came to a city of Samaria, Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, so Jesus is going to have to give some understanding, you know, gauge some receptivity in this, uh, in this encounter, and he, and he does that. And do you guys remember uh, how the, how the encounter, encounter goes? She gives him water, physical water, but Jesus says, if you knew who it was you were speaking with, you would ask me for water that will last eternally, living water. And then he says, uh, hey, where's your husband? Okay, he knew, remember he knew Nicodemus, and he knows her. And she says, I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, you've had several husbands. And the one you're with now is you're not even married to. So what's he doing? He's pointing out her sin to her. So on the one hand, you got a religious guy who lives this, from an outside perspective, lives a kind of perfect life. He needs Jesus. He needs to be born again. On the other hand, you got this woman, totally different kind of life. They both need exactly the same thing. And that's what the book of John is, is pointing out. So we learn about this woman's life. Uh, Point C on, on page 36, that she had been married five times, was living out of wedlock with another man. Jesus revealed to her later in this episode, I don't have time, unfortunately, to read it, that He was the Messiah, the Christ that the Jewish prophets had been writing about for centuries. How did Jesus know so much about this woman's life since He had never met her before? He was new to the area. Again, this was a divine appointment. And Jesus knows, because He's God, He knows everything. And how did other Samaritans respond to Jesus, and what did they conclude? So what happens is, after this episode with Jesus, this woman goes back in uh, to talk to her people, and she says, I met a man who told me about my whole life, and it appears this man is the Messiah. And so many people came then to meet Jesus, and they asked him, Samaritans, stay with us. It tells you in John 4, he stayed with them for two days, and many of them came to believe in Jesus as the, as the Messiah. So Jesus gave understanding, and this woman had, had uh, receptivity, and it appears that she and certainly others, the episode tells us, came to Christ as a result. All right, page 37. Jesus makes claims of being one with God. Makes claims. Several times when Jesus declared that He was equal to and one with God, some people were greatly offended and attempted to, to kill Him. We see in John 5, 8, and 10. For a mere man to claim to be God or equal to Him was one form of blasphemy. The Old Testament penalty for blasphemy was death by stoning. But in John chapter 5, Jesus, in fact, makes Himself connected with God in ways uh, He says He is one with the Father. So true or false, by asserting that God was His Father, Jesus was acknowledging that He was of the same essential and equal nature as, as God. The answer to that is true. Now, one of the ways you're going to know that the answer to that is true, that that's what Jesus was claiming, is because as you go to chapter 8 and chapter 10 here that we're going to see, you see the reaction of the people to whom he originally said that. Point C on page 37 in John chapter 8. At the very beginning of our study, we learned that God is eternal. That is, He's from everlasting to everlasting. 
So there's, remember I said there's a sense in which we're eternal in that we will all live forever somewhere, you know, either with God or not. We're going to see in a little bit what Jesus says about hell. Uh, very unpleasant subject. But we're all going to live eternally somewhere. So we're eternal in that sense, but we're not eternal in that we all had a beginning. But God's eternal in that He has no beginning or end. And He has life in Him in Himself. And so at the very beginning of our study, we learned that God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. So what does Jesus in John chapter 8 reveal about Himself? John chapter 8, here's what's going on. Uh, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are increasingly hating on Jesus. And you can kind of see why, right? They're, because He's exposing who they are and what their problem is and that they need Him. So they're hating on Jesus. And they increasingly see Him as a challenge to their authority. And so uh, they say to Jesus in John chapter 8, we are of our father Abraham. Now, remember how important it is to be Abraham. Remember, going way back to Genesis, in you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So they take great pride in the fact that they are children of Abraham. Abraham's our father. Jesus tells them, John chapter 8, he says, you're of your father, the devil. Okay? And then Jesus says this. Look at that on the screen. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When they hear Jesus say, I am, they take up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. They take up stones to stone him and kill him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. Before Abraham was, before Abraham, I am and do you remember that, that phrase, I am? Exodus, we saw it when God called Moses. And he said, Moses, I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh to let my, let my people go. And, and Moses says, well, who am I supposed to tell has sent me? Tell them I am has sent you. I am that I am. And now here's Jesus, 1,500 years later. And he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. I am God. And they understood that he was making that kind of audacious claim, and that's why they picked up stones to, to kill him. Now, you know, today sometimes you'll hear people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, his opponents thought he did. <laughs> they thought he claimed to be God because they were coming after him to, to kill him for blasphemy for that, that very thing. And then John chapter 10 were the Jews accurate in their understanding that, in fact, Jesus was claiming to be God? In John chapter 10, he said, I and my Father are one. It is indeed true that Jesus claimed, claimed to be God. So the Bible teaches that Jesus, is the Son, is God. <clears throat> and, and by the way, th this is what it says. The Jews answered him, John 10, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's what they understood him to be saying. Okay? So, you have one God, according to the Bible, in three persons. Now, you'll never get your mind around that. None of us will. I mean, there are some things about God, a fair number of them, that you'll never get your finite mind around. Sometimes we think, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll understand it all. Nah. No, really, you would have to be God to understand it all. Only God understands it all, okay? We'll understand better, but there are things about God that you can't get your mind around. Like, for example, God has existed for all eternity. Where did God come from? Now, everybody's got that same dilemma. You all got to start with someone or something. Even people who don't believe in God, they've got a world around them that they've got to explain somehow, and so they have to explain the first person or thing, and they can't. And so they just start with gases or something that compress and then explode, and that was what I was taught when I was at the U University of Michigan. Yes? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the answer is, well, who made your first thing? You know, the, the, the truth is they can't answer the very question that they're asking you. And so the question then is, does it make more sense to believe in a personal being that created other personal beings or some impersonal, inanimate thing that's resulted in everything we see around us? I'll go with what we say, okay? But everybody has to start somewhere. And so when people hit you with that, you know, you need to ask them, so where did your thing come from? You know, and they, they don't have an answer. And I don't care who it is. No one does. I mean, I kept my biology book from the University of Michigan. I kept it on purpose. It's in my office, uh, and I kept it just so I could show people <laughs> what it says in the first few pages. In the first few pages, uh, here's how the subchapter is titled, The Primordial Soup. And then it goes on to describe the primordial soup as gases that compressed and then ultimately over time exploded and then over time developed everything that we see now. And so, you know, you just kind of have to read it to believe it. Because you could sort of start that with once upon a time, there were gases and the gases came together. So in all seriousness, don't let anybody belittle what you believe about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible story begins with God. Christianity begins with God. And everybody else has to begin with something that they, they can't explain. So it's one God in three persons. You can't get your mind around that. This is a kind of famous representation of what that is. Father, Son, Spirit. And you see in the middle there, God, so the Son, is, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Son. So you have one God, three persons. And Jesus is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God, God the Father. And so when I talk about Jesus, rather than talking about Him as the Son of God, even though that's perfectly biblical phrase, I refer to him uh, usually as God the Son so that people understand that he's fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right, page 38, teachings about hell. And as I said, a very, very unpleasant subject, but necessary. Jesus talked a lot about it. And part of our salvation, part of the message that we want to communicate to people, and that's why you're taking a class like this on evangelism, is that God saves people. And that word saves, remember that the angel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because, do you remember what it said? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. So in Jesus is salvation. We are saved through Him. Synonyms for save are rescue, delivered. So it's Jesus that rescues us. Well, well, what does He rescue us from? And it's not so much what He rescues us from as who He rescues us from. Um, Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. Romans 2, 5. Romans 2, 5 says, quote, You are storing up wrath for yourselves against the day of God's wrath. So who is wrathful at our sin, at our rebellion? Who is angry at that? God is a holy God. And God's righteous anger, because He is a holy God, requires then a payment for sin. Justice has to be done. So now the question is, how is justice going to be done? And it's either going to be done by you paying for it yourself or by you receiving the payment that God made for you Himself. If you pay for it yourself, you know how long it takes to pay it off? That would be forever. So hell is a consequence of two things, the absolute holy justice of God and our sin, those two things. And because of those two things, there must be then a payment and an eternal payment made. God has given, thankfully, 
a gracious solution to that in Jesus. But when we give people the message of salvation, how to be rescued, how to be delivered, we have to include this then. So, page 38. As He moved among the people, Jesus often lovingly but sternly warned unbelievers of the reality of eternal punishment in hell and the urgent need to escape it in places like Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 16. In an earlier lesson, we learned that an everlasting fire was created for the punishment of the devil and his angels. Jesus says this in Matthew 25. Jesus warned those who follow Satan that they too will experience that same eternal punishment. Then in Mark chapter 9, Jesus used this phrase, the fire is not quenched. The fire is not quenched. That's a, that's a phrase that Jesus uses. That's why we say this is, this is forever. And theologically, it, it makes sense that it would be forever because the offense is an eternal offense. We have committed cosmic treason against God in our sin. It's an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And so it requires then an infinite payment. That's either going to be by us or it's going to be by God. Jesus once told, see, about a man who died and went to, and went to hell, Luke uh, chapter 16. Some of you remember this. It's a rich man who dies. He goes to hell and in hell he lifts up his eyes and he sees this beggar who had come to his table while he was in life and he had begged for scraps from his table. But this guy uh, was so caught up in himself uh, that he didn't care and... Uh, the, the beggar dies, the beggar's in heaven, and God gives this opportunity for the rich man to see Lazarus in heaven, the, the, the beggar. And he's begging for relief from this, this torment. So, true or false, hell is a place of conscious suffering. And the answer to that is, is true. True or false, once people are in hell, <coughs> in hell they can escape. The, that, is, that is false. So there is the reality of eternal punishment outside of Christ and the rescue, salvation, deliverance that He gives. Page 39, the miracles of Jesus. Out of compassion for hurting people and to demonstrate His divine power, Jesus healed the sick and the disabled. He cast out demons. He even raised people from the dead. To demonstrate that He was truly the Son of God, as John had said, Jesus performed many many miracles. Now, with regard to miracles, as you read through your Bible, you see certainly Jesus doing amazing things. And then after Jesus, He has the 12 apostles, and He gives them, He authorizes them, gives them the power to do uh, amazing things as well. And so they have the power to heal people. Peter, the apostle Peter, raised a teenage girl from the dead. The apostle Paul raised a man from, from the dead. You read about those in the book of Acts in your, in your Bible. So here's Jesus doing this. You see the apostles doing this. And so today you get a lot of people who say, well, you know, if you're a religious leader, why don't you do this? You know, or maybe we should be doing this. And you see the guys on TV and they're always claiming to be able to, to do this and so on. Uh, did you know there are only four periods in the, in the entire Bible? There are four epics, four periods where miracles, clusters of miracles happen like this. So they, when you read the life of Jesus, I mean, they're very common in Jesus' life. God is here. He authorizes the apostles, and so it looks like these are just everyday occurrences. But they're not everyday occurrences, and they weren't everyday occurrences. In fact, they weren't even every century occurrences in, in biblical times. It was just a handful of times, four to be exact, in where, where this happened. And Jesus, the period of Jesus on earth for three years, and then the, the apostles establishing the church are two of those four, and then a couple in the, Old, in the Old Testament. And so the idea that miracles are things that we're supposed to do uh, is, is, is false. But I can understand why people think it, because you read your Bible and you see all these miracles happening, you think we're supposed to be doing this. Real quick, um, here's just a few reasons why that's false. One, they weren't happening much even in biblical times. But uh, two really important things for you to remember, me to remember. You're not Jesus, and you're also not an apostle, okay? You're neither of those. There are no apostles today. You know how I know there are no apostles today? Because they were known as the 12. When you've, when you've got an exclusive group where you can just put the number out there, in the Bible it just says the 12, and people know who they are. 
And then the Bible also gives qualifications to be an apostle that none of us can meet. One of those is 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. You had to have seen the risen Christ so that you could be a witness of His resurrection. In fact, remember when Judas, one of Jesus' first but false followers, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Him, when he, he betrayed Jesus, when He hanged Himself, He committed suicide after that, they replaced Him. And in Acts chapter 1 it says, the replacement has to be someone who was with us the whole time so that that person can be a witness with us of His resurrection. That's what it says. So they chose Matthias, a guy who fit that, fit that bill. So none of you, I don't, we don't fit that bill. And there are a number of verses that indicate that apostles had abilities that, that, we, don't, that we don't have. But Jesus did these miracles. They demonstrated that He was indeed the Son of God. What specific types of miracles you see be there did Jesus perform in His earthly ministry? He healed all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. He healed those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. In John chapter 11, He raises Lazarus from, from the dead. Now, I mentioned in Luke chapter 16, there was this beggar named Lazarus. These are two different Lazaruses, okay? Common name in those days. Uh, but Jesus had a friend. This guy was a personal friend of His. And he lived in a town called Bethany. He lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, in, in Bethany. Jesus would visit Lazarus, Mary, and Martha on occasion in, in Bethany. They were, so they were personal friends. Jesus was away, and while he was away, Lazarus dies. Word gets to Jesus that Lazarus has died. And if you read the account in John chapter 11, remember how Jesus you know, took the route he wanted to take to go to Samaria? He did the same thing with this. His friend dies. They're sending for him. And he takes a route that takes longer. And so then when he gets there, they say to him, they being Mary and Martha, they say, Master, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And here he comes, and, and it goes to tell us that at this point he's been dead for four days. His body has be begun to, to decompose. It says that. And Jesus does this to say, hey, look, um, there ain't no embalming procedure or any like, anything like that that can keep me from being able to raise somebody from the dead. That's what he's doing. And he comes and he stands outside the grave of Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out alive. In fact, that's everybody astonished. <laughs> and this is Lazarus, okay, coming out in his grave clothes, and Lazarus is, is alive. Now, he's not in a glorified body. It's not a forever body. This is just demonstrating Jesus' power to raise from the, from the dead. Jesus will say in that very episode in verses 25 and 26, John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And so... He is, he's showing who He is, the, the Lord of life. Lazarus is going to, to die again. I mean, you're, you know, your poor Lazarus, by the way. You know, I, if I'm Lazarus, I'm thinking, just let me go to heaven. <laughs> okay? The guy comes alive again, now he's going to have to die again. But anyway, that's, uh, the, that's the way that went. Look at uh, page 40, the betrayal of Jesus. When Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, betrayed Him, Jesus did not supernaturally resist arrest but willingly submitted himself to his captors. Now, what happens in this is that this is Judas giving Jesus the kiss of betrayal so that the soldiers know the one that they're to come for. He's made an arrangement already to do that. Remember, on the night before Jesus is crucified, this is the night before he... He gathers for the Last Supper, and He says, one of you is going to betray me, and then they go, is it I, Lord, is it I? And of course, we know it to be Judas Iscariot, and He goes out, He collects His 30 pieces of silver. He had prearranged to give this signal for the one to, for the one to arrest. And this whole lesson, Lesson 29, is all about the fact that Jesus is the one who is the Davidic King, 
And even though he is, he's betrayed by, by Judas, none of this is an accident. It's all part of God's plan for him to be betrayed and die for our sins. In fact, in Psalm 41, you see point A there, but, uh, the prophecy in Psalm 41, it's a prophecy that one is going to betray the coming Messiah. That one turns out to be Judas Iscariot. And then we see it happening in Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus gives the Last Supper. He says, my body's going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed. It's going to be done for you. My blood is going to be shed for, for many. And Jesus doesn't resist because this is the purpose for which he, he came to earth. Now, if you guys will give me two minutes, I want to finish lesson 30, and then we'll pick up there next week, okay? All right, page 41, appearances before unjust judges. So then with this betrayal now, Jesus is going to appear before, uh, before Pilate and, and others. And the Jewish leaders, the Roman, the Roman leaders, and this whole lesson, lesson 30, is about the fact that, that Jesus, even though He's the King of glory, and He could destroy all of these people right now, He doesn't because they are playing a part in the drama that God started way back in Genesis chapter 1. And now this is coming to culmination in the death of the Son of God on the cross for, for His people. And so Jesus doesn't deny the fact that He's a king. He, in fact, at one point tells His, um, tells his followers that I could, bring, I could send 12,000 angels, legion, as a matter of fact, He says, of angels, if I so chose, to destroy the Romans and destroy what they're, what they're doing now. But He didn't do any of that. And that's the point of lesson number, lesson number 30, because this is the purpose for which he came. All right, we're going to see next week then, page 42, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the remainder of the story. And we'll be able to get it done with our one week left next week. Lord willing, we'll see you then. Thank you.